Father, we are uh, appreciative of the word. Lord, we are blessed with uh, the nice weather today and the ability, Lord, uh, to sit in a, in a comfortable type of a setting. Um, I suspect some of us colder than others right now, but Lord, would you use your word uh, in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds and uh, to refresh our spirits. Father, as I just sort of look around, I, I'm reminded of how many people have how many, so many things that are going on in their lives that weigh on our hearts. And so, Father, we pray for, uh, we just pray for peace. We pray for kind of a relief. We certainly pray for the blessing of your presence. Lord, for the assurance of your word, for the confidence that we have in you. Lord, all of these uh, feelings, these expressions, really to overwhelm us even this morning. Lord, that we will, have, we will know that we have come into your presence and have met with you. And Lord, that our hearts would be more inclined to, to give you the glory, not so much for what you do, but just for who you are. And that from that would spring forth worship, the attitude of our hearts. So bless your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we are in Acts chapter 13. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and begin to do so. You remember Acts uh, 13 begins the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul uh, of Barnabas. They also brought with them Mark, and they're going to begin to head out. And they're going to go sent out from that church there in Antioch. Somebody has got to reach the masses. Somebody has to reach these Gentile nations. Somebody has to bring the message of the gospel to them, the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the entire world. And that church in Antioch, they raised their hand. They said, well, why not us? And, of course, the entire body wasn't going to go. And so they sent some. They sent them out. They commissioned them. They enabled them to go. And the ones they sent, as I said in the past, was, was really their best. We must do this, and we must reach this world. So they send Paul, the teacher. They send Barnabas, the great encourager. And as we saw in one of our studies recently, they, they first set off from the coastland there of what we might call the Middle East there, that Mediterranean coast, and they make their way to that island of Cyprus. And there they first go, the first city they hit, they go into the synagogue, and they begin to speak to the Jewish people there. And then they begin to travel through, or they do, they travel through the entire island till they come to the capital city, the city of Paphos. And there they have the opportunity. God opens up the doors. He orchestrates things so that the, the governor of the island, the proconsul, invites them, come, tell me what it is you're teaching. We learned that this man was a learned man, which really is a way of saying he was a thoughtful man. He was a man who gave thought to things. And he wanted to hear what Paul was saying. He wanted to hear what Barnabas was teaching. And he did. And the scripture tells us he got saved. And history tells us not just him, but his whole family and his community became followers of Jesus Christ. All because a few men went and a body of believers sent them. Now this missionary journey, we know in length, it lasts about three years of Paul and Barnabas' life. And it started, as I said, on the island of Cyprus, but now it'll move to the mainland of Europe slash Asia, today what we call the country of Turkey, 
then referred to as Asia Minor, and we'll pick up there. Look at verse 13. It says, now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos. Remember, that was that city on the island of Cyprus. And they came to Perga, which is another city in Pamphylia, which is another region in Turkey. And John left them and he returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Lots of names there and it can certainly get confusing for us at times. But I think if we slowly break it down, it's not so confusing. Paphos, you remember, capital city of Cyprus, located in the southwest corner of the island. They've gone through the entire island of Cyprus. And now Barnabas, Paul, and Mark, they head off to the mainland. And the city that they're going to come to is a port city in the, the southern portion there uh, of the mainland. It's the city of Perga, which as we see there was in the region, we might compare it to a state, but in the region of Pamphylia. Cyprus was a province of the Roman Empire. Pamphylia was a province, a province of the Roman Empire. All right, so don't let it confuse you. Perga is the city, Pamphylia is the province. And there our friends Paul, Barnabas, and Mark go next, where they're going to begin to minister. Now you'll notice that this time Luke does not refer to the group as Barnabas and Saul. That's how he's been doing it throughout uh, the book of Acts, since these two guys have gotten together, it's always been Barnabas and Saul set out. Barnabas and Saul went into the synagogue. Barnabas and Saul traveled all the way down to uh, Pathos, Paphos and so on. But notice what it says here in verse 13, now Paul and his companions, and that's significant. It's going to be like that for the rest of the book of Acts. Something has transpired in the relationship of these individuals, so much so that Paul is now listed first and in this case, Saul, um, Barnabas isn't even mentioned at all. And so it says Paul and his companions. At this point in this missionary journey, Paul's leadership and his prominence in the group becomes evident. If we were to use biblical terminology, we might say something like this. Paul increased and Barnabas decreased. Because up until now, Paul had been in the background and he ministered alongside of Barnabas, but going forth, Paul will be the leader in this endeavor to which God has had earlier set them apart. <clears throat> From this point on in their journey, Paul is thrust into the forefront, and Barnabas is going to fade back into a secondary role. Now, for many of us, that would be a hard pill to swallow. That would be a situation where you look at, yeah, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. I was the upfront guy. We could imagine Barnabas saying, or we could anticipate if we were in his shoes or sandals, we would be saying something like that. You remember, it was Barnabas that went and sought out Saul, Rabbi Saul, now known as the Apostle Paul. And he traveled all the way to the city of Tarsus, hunted him down. We, we learned that word meant it was a difficult trek to get there. He went all the way there. He found this guy. He convinced this guy, come back with me. It was Barnabas that gave Paul or Saul an opportunity to enter into the ministry. And now we see that it's Paul that's going to rise to this prominent leadership position and Barnabas that's going to take a back role. We might say it was Barnabas that gave Paul his chance. And so it's not too hard for us to 
to sort of imagine in our minds what this could have come to. How Barnabas could have said, no, I'm going to be the leader here. You want to go start some other ministry, you can do so. But I'm going to be the one to continue to be the guy in charge. But that's not how Barnabas responds at all. Rather, he continues on happily serving in second place. And the reason is this. The reason is because for Barnabas, what's important to him is not that his name is exalted or that he gets to be the leader or that he's listed as the headliner or anything like that. But what's important to Barnabas is that the gospel goes forth and that it does so in the most effective manner possible. And clearly that is with Paul in the lead. That's the same attitude we saw that he had back in chapter 11. You remember back in chapter 11, just after Barnabas went to get Saul from Tarsus, brought him all the way back to the city of Antioch in Syria, and we learned there that Paul became kind of that primary teacher there. Even though we might say that Barnabas was sort of the pastor of the church. But again, what Barnabas realized in that instance, who could better reach these Hellenists than this guy, Rabbi Saul? who grew up in a Hellenistic culture. And since he could more properly reach them, Barnabas gladly pulled back. Because again, what was significant to Barnabas was not his glory, but the Lord's glory. And so Barnabas, from this point on, takes a second uh, role, so to speak. I'm reminded of the quote by Harry Truman, one of the nicest men, I think, ever in America. If you ever read about him, he was just such a nice man. Uh, I don't know how effective he was. You can debate that yourselves, but he was nice, which is good enough for me. And Harry Truman, he said this, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. And I know some of you, Ronald Reagan said something similar. Barnabas understood that manner of thinking. He didn't care who got the credit. What he cared about is who got the glory. And he wanted Jesus to be the one that got that glory. May God, may that be our hearts in the lives that we live. And so with Paul in the lead, Paul and his companions, they leave Cyprus, as we see in our verse, and they make their way to the city of Perga, again, on the mainland, Asia Minor, as it has been known in history. Today, it's the nation of Turkey. And there, it's in this little region that is called Pamphylia. Now, Pamphylia, it's important for us to know, it was a low-lying coastal province. It was right there on the Sea of the Mediterranean. It was hot. It was a tropical environment. And in that day in particular, it was an environment that was prone to diseases like malaria. And many historians believe that while there, Paul, at the very least, and perhaps his companions that were with him, picked up malaria. And it was an ailment which would continue to impact the Apostle Paul many years into the future. That's what many historians uh, postulate. And the reason why they do the thinking, it develops from something Paul would later write in the book of Galatians. So now we are getting into the portion of the book of Acts where many of the events we are reading about are taking place in cities that the apostle, particularly the apostle Paul, would later write letters to. And so as a Bible student, this is a good time for you to be looking at the passage in Acts and then also reading the supplementary material, so to speak, and in this case, the book of Galatians. And so later in the book of Galatians, 
Paul would write this to the believers there. He would say this, Galatians chapter 4, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, that I first came to you to preach. And even though my illness was a difficulty for you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if were, I were Christ Jesus himself. And so the scenario you can, pick, uh, you can picture that Paul is talking about, he finally makes his way into, from Pamphylia, Perga in Pamphylia, to the region of Galatia, which was further north, and he's really sick. And he says there, that's the reason I got there. I came to your region because I was so sick. And then when I was there, I was a burden to you guys. You had to come in, you had to nurse me and make soup for me and bring blankets for me and dab my head and all these kinds of things. That's what he's referring to. Now, the reason why historians and Greg here think that he's talking about what happened down in Perga is because as we continue to read through the rest of 13 and into chapter 14, Paul begins to mention all of the cities that he goes to, which just so happen to be in the region of Galatia. And so it seems that that's what happened. Down in Perga, he got sick. He probably picked up malaria. That's what a lot of the people picked up in that hot tropical environment. And that that impacted him, affected him for the rest of his days. Again, some historians believe that when he would talk about that thorn in the flesh that he had in his life, that he was referring to this fact that he kept getting sick. And he would be sick again and just sort of have that cycle every season or, or what have you. And so Pamphylia, low-lying, coastal, hot, tropical environment. Galatia, which was north of Pamphylia, further inland into Asia and Europe there, was a mountainous region. As again, as I said, it was north of Pamphylia. It was very mountainous. It contained some of these cities you may have heard of and we will read of in the next week or two. It contained the city of Iconium, where they'll go, Lystra, and then another city named Antioch, this one, not the original Antioch they came out of, that was uh, Syrian Antioch. The, uh, this other Antioch is Poseidon or Pisidia Antioch. Again, the very places mentioned in chapter 14. And so again, the thinking is that Paul, sick, realizes, look, we got to get out of here. That the intention was we were going to stay in Perga, we were going to minister in Perga, but they're realizing, look, if we stay here any longer, we're all going to die. We've got to get out of here and get into a climate that works a little bit better for us to minister. And that that's what took them to Galatia. Remember, it, he said, it was my sickness that brought me to you initially to preach the gospel. Now, if that's indeed how everything went down, and it seems pretty uh, realistic that that is it, that interests me a bit. Because what it demonstrates, it, it demonstrates the way that life's circumstances sometimes force us to move on from one place to another. And that those circumstances do not necessarily mean that we are a failure. And if I just wasn't so weak, I wouldn't have gotten sick and I wouldn't have had to leave Perga or some, some thinking like that. Or that somehow we have let God down. God was in these circumstances. God was using even Paul's sickness down in Perga, which forced him to find a better climate to go to, to advance the gospel in the area of Galatia. And it's because of Paul's ministry in the area of Galatia that we have the book of Galatians. God used sort of the normal circumstances of life and the difficult circumstances of life 
to direct Paul and Barnabas and this missionary journey. It would be nice if the heavens parted and voice, a voice came down from heaven to tell us where to go next and do next and all of this sort of stuff. And I do believe that God can guide us directly and speak a word into our lives. But typically, it's the circumstances of life that move us around. And it's our desire, Lord, I just want to be in the center of your will today. When we come to the end of our days, we can see God's hand and how God guided and directed us just through the normal course of life. Supernaturally natural. A second thing that this little account demonstrates to me, besides one or more of the ways that God speaks to his children, is, uh, again, through this life circumstances. We're not told why Barnabas and Saul went to Cyprus. I suggest that maybe Barnabas just simply, that's where I grew up. I want to go and see my old teacher and baseball coach and see if I can reach him for the Lord. And here we have these circumstances where they just wanted to go to a healthier place for them. And they exercise some, some earthly wisdom. Now, we continue in verse 13. There's one little point that's significant that Luke adds. Remember, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he adds this in the middle of verse 13, the end of verse 13. And John left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, you remember, John is John Mark, sometimes just called Mark. John Mark, you recall, was the nephew, technically, I think, the cousin, but sort of a younger cousin, like a nephew of Barnabas. We learned he was the son of one of the New Testament's Marys, who was a prominent figure there in Jerusalem, probably the place where they hosted the Last Supper and the place where Pentecost went down, uh, that filling, the place where that prayer meeting was when Peter was in prison, all of these things. And so this guy grew up around the things of the faith. And as we learned, Barnabas invited him to come back to Antioch with Paul. Barnabas and Paul went down to Jerusalem to give a gift and on their way back to Antioch, they brought this young man with him, this fellow John Mark. We also learned in one of our last studies that they brought him along on this missionary journey. And so the great apostle Paul, this great encourager Barnabas, and then this young man, Mark, whose job essentially would be to assist and to help, to be available. Paul, you do what you need to do. I'll go get that thing. You stay here and continue to teach the people this guy Mark, and also an opportunity for him to observe, to take in, to see how these folks are ministering. What Luke tells us now is that sometime during this missionary journey, sometime during their time there in Pamphylia, that John Mark leaves the group and he returns to Jerusalem. We see that there in verse 13. Now, in and of itself, that's not a problem, I guess. It, should, it doesn't appear to be concerning in and of itself, Maybe he had somewhere he had to be. He had to be back at work. He had to be back here and there. And he planned to leave the group a little bit earlier. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we discover some things about his departure. In fact, the Greek word we have translated in a lot of our English versions, it says left them. John left them. The Greek word is actually the same root word as the word translated in a lot of our Bibles, apostasy which is a word which means a departure from the faith. And so he left them, he departed. And again, same root word as the word apostasy. And so a stronger translation that might more accurately describe what Mark does here would be the word he abandoned them. Now that's certainly saying something. 
if we read that, that way, verse 13, and John abandoned them and returned to Jerusalem. And so when Paul and maybe Barnabas were sick and fleeing Pamphylia for a safer climate, Mark abandoned them and went back to Jerusalem. Again, that certainly sheds a different light on the subject. Part of the way through this missionary journey, when Mark as an assistant, his services would have really been needed. You've been sick. You know what it's like when you don't even want to get out of your bed, you know, to go get something, you know, down, go to the store or something like that, and someone offers to help. You know, oh, thank God. Thank you. I really preach. Could you please just pick me up this or pick me up that? When Paul could have really used Mark's services, Mark decides to take off. Now, we're never told why in our Bibles. What we do know for sure, for certain, is that Mark, or excuse me, that Paul did not appreciate it. And he talks about it later on. It's recorded for us in our Bibles. Later, Luke will later describe Paul and Barnabas's their interaction. So they, they finish this trip, they go all the way back to Antioch, they're there for a bit, and they decide we need to go on another missionary trip. And Paul and Barnabas are talking about it. All right, well, who should we bring with us? And Barnabas, as we know, the son of encouragement, of course, he says, I think we should bring Mark again. And Paul's like, are you out of your mind? Bring Mark again. He abandoned us when we needed him more than anything. I know he did, but I, I, he, he's matured a lot. Matured my foot. We're not bringing that kid with us again. You know, they have this interaction. You think I'm making it up. This is Acts 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a disagreement so that they separated from one another. Barnabas and Paul disagreed so much on this issue that it led to, well, then you know what, fine. You want to take them, you take them, and you go on your journey. I'm going to take somebody else and go elsewhere. And Barnabas and, Sp and Paul split over this particular issue. So it was significant enough to the Apostle Paul. We do know that. And so whatever Mark's reasoning was for abandoning this mission, Paul saw that as such a defect that he refused to allow Mark to accompany him on the next journey. And again, it resulted in the two, uh, Barnabas and Paul, splitting. Again, we don't know why or what led to Mark's departure. And historians have suggested a whole lot of reasons. But again, we don't, we don't really know why. But I think we can, with some heavenly imagination, we could take some guesses. Some have suggested that the challenges of the mission that they wore on Mark, that they caused him to look back for the, the easy days of Jerusalem. Remember, Mark came from a relatively well-to-do family, a family that was able to hire servants for their home, relatively well-to-do, comfortable living two-story home at the very least there in Jerusalem. And now he's carting around the world and he's having these difficulties and magicians are screaming devil talk at him. And then he gets to Pamphylia and people are getting sick and dying around him. And some of the members of his group are getting sick. And some have suggested it was just too much for Mark. And Mark said, I'm, what am I doing here? I'm getting out of here. There's a... Uh, fifth century uh, Christian historian 
I'm not quite sure how to say his name, Chrysostom, um, and I probably said it wrong. But he, he said this way back then, 1,500 years ago. He said the lad wanted his mother. We might say something like he wanted his mommy. And he, he, he wilted in the difficulty. Perhaps that was his reasoning. Others have suggested that the dangers of the road ahead of him caused him to turn back. What we do know is that the journey from Perga down in the lowlands to Galatia up high involved 36, going 3,600 miles, not miles, um, it, it, it involved going up, uh, like a mountain essentially. What's the term for that? Maybe, 3,600 feet maybe? Yeah, elevation. And so they had to go up this difficult terrain. No thank you, is what Mark seems to be saying. We also know that those roadways and kind of winding trails in these little mountain edges and things like that was a place where a lot of robbers and things like that were. And so people are unsuspectingly walking this trail to get from here to get to there, and then people would attack them. And so it had its difficulties, both natural and man-made. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul references his various trials on his various missionary journeys. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, on frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. You notice there, the second thing that he lists is danger from robbers. That's a phrase that perfectly describes the road from Perga in Pamphylia to Antioch in Pisidia. And so perhaps it was that, that our friend Mark is thinking, man, what am I, I'm not going that way, forget it. And he turns back and goes to Jerusalem. Another possibility for the reason Mark decided to turn back, maybe it was related to the recent transition from Barnabas being in charge to Paul being in charge. And those that put forward this idea, they wonder aloud if the reason why he does is because his uncle, the guy who brought him into the ministry, has been demoted of some sorts. And if this is the case, the thinking would be, well, if that guy's going to be in charge, I'm not going. Again, kind of the, uh, the flavor we get in the scriptures is that Barnabas was a sweet, loving, caring brother. He'll put his arm on you. It's all right, man. You can do it. And Paul was a little more no-nonsense. And so Mark thinking, I'm not following that guy. I'm out of here. Again, it's all speculation and we don't know for sure, but I, I think we can relate with any one of those scenarios. And there was something going on in Mark that causes him to say, yeah, I'm out of here. And he fails. He abandons the mission when they needed him the most to do exactly the reason why we brought you. He takes off. If I may, I've read more of the Bible than this story. Praise the Lord, I'll say. And the reason I say that is because we see as we read other parts of the scripture that the time did come and is recorded for us in our Bibles when Paul forgave and restored Mark to a position of ministry once more. Years later, 15 years later or more, when Paul was writing to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, he said these words. He said, get Mark and bring him with you when you come because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Mark, who had abandoned him, and Paul said, absolutely not, he's not coming with us, has been restored. And now Paul sees him as one that is helpful 
in his ministry. In the book of Philemon, small little book. Sometimes we wonder, why is this even in our Bibles? Just seems like a personal letter between two people. And yet, it's such a good, helpful book for us. It's a book about restoration. It's a book about a slave and a slave owner and the slave who ran away and Paul trying to intervene in, in between them, two Christian men, and trying to restore relationship for them because the slave owner could have had the slave put to death for uh, running away as he did. And in there, as Paul is encouraging Philemon and Onesimus to uh, reunite and to get back together and to not let this thing be between them, at the very end of the book, Paul demonstrates that he practices what he preaches. This is in the last verse or two of the book. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Wait for it. <laughs> it's the big, like, punch, and I got an airplane flying by. He says, Epaphras said hi to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And we see there that Mark is fully restored, but not to a situation like, yeah, I guess you can come back, but expect to carry a lot of bags, mister. Expect to have the crummy jobs, mister, until you prove yourself. Now, he calls him his fellow worker, his equal, fellow servant attempting to reach others. Paul and Mark had been restored in relationship. So there's two things that I appreciate about this event involving Mark abandoning his team. One has to do with Paul's response. The second has to do with Mark's restoration. And so my takeaway from this is this. One, God's servants, from Mark's perspective, God's servants are not perfect. We're not perfect. We fail at times. Sometimes, as Mark did, we get scared. And because we get scared or because we are afraid, we allow that fear to impact uh, how we minister or how we serve or how we live. Mark knows that experience, and he failed in it, even as you and I may. Sometimes, believers, we make decisions that we'll later regret. I imagine Mark later on said, I should have never abandoned them. I should have told people what I was dealing with and going through. I should have asked people to pray for me. I should have brought it to the Lord more. But instead, I just acted in my own human wisdom, and when the going got tough, I got out of there. And I'm sure, as time went on, he regretted that decision. And sometimes, as believers, we do things that we wish we hadn't done, we're embarrassed about. We hope nobody writes it in the Bible about us so we can talk about it 2,000 years later. And so we have an example of that. Sometimes we come to different conclusions about how to proceed, like Barnabas and Paul did. Two godly men believing God would have them do different things. We should take Mark. No, we shouldn't. And sometimes we come to different conclusions with others. And so this passage, and I'm sure you can think of some other examples, this passage gives me hope that the challenges that you and I face in our walks with the Lord, that they're not unique to us. The Bible understands them and speaks into them. And that even great saints like Paul and Barnabas and Mark went through those types of things. And we may as well. Secondly, I referenced it just briefly. Godly men have disagreements. And so Barnabas, godly man. Paul, godly man. This doesn't make them bad people. 
It doesn't make them bad leaders. It doesn't unqualify them for future ministry. And neither does it when we experience some strife among ourselves as well. And so if Paul and Barnabas had trouble in their ministry, it shouldn't shock us that you and I may have some difficulties with one another as well. Thirdly, Mark failed, but he did not remain a failure, which I just think is so sweet. The Lord is so good. It's not a one and done. Sorry, you struck out, you're out. Mark failed. We all admit it. It's written in our Bibles. We can see it here. And I appreciate the simple way that William Barclay, he's a Bible commentator, he described Mark's experience this way. He said, no man needs stay the way he is. Amen? I would add to that, no woman either. Mark failed, even as you and I have and will, but he didn't have to remain a failure. He didn't have to live the rest of his days saying, well, I had a shot at it, but I blew it, and that's it. Mark, as many of you probably know, or you could probably guess, is the same Mark that would go on to write the gospel, the gospel that bears his name, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's the one that Paul would say in some of his final words, Bring, make sure he's here with me. He's my fellow worker. Our God is very gracious. I, I imagine you know that. And he's very merciful and he's very kind. This week as I was studying this, I was reminded of this pretty cool video series that I saw, sort of a drama type thing where they, they bring a fella in, they sit him in this dark room here with this black felt thing behind him. And he takes on the persona of a character in the Bible and he tells his or her story. I went back and I looked to remind myself so I could watch again the video on John Mark. And it's just so sweet and so powerful and so lifelike realistic. And we're going to send it out to you uh, sometime in the next day or so. It's about 12 minutes in length. And I know some of you, 12 minutes, I ain't watching it. Just give me the highlights. Tell me what it's about. Would you please take 12 minutes, go to the bathroom or something, turn on your YouTube, and watch this video. And I believe it will bless you because it, it really speaks well. The actor really captures so wonderfully well how sweet it is to be restored even when you so publicly failed in that way. And so well, that will be making its way out to you. Take some time to watch that. And let's continue in our study. I don't have a clock today. How are we doing? Is it two yet? Um, uh, we're, st we're good. We got lots of time. All right, so continuing our study, it says there in verse, uh, we better have time because I'm on the second verse today. Um, it says, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now remember, there's multiple Antiochs in the Bible. There were as many as 15 Antiochs in the ancient world. There are at least two that are referenced in our scriptures. And so this is a different Antioch than the one from where they came out of. This is Antioch in Pisidia, in the area of today, what is Turkey? Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidia, was about 135 miles inland. So they, they stopped in Perga, in Pamphylia. They began to go uphill, 3,600 feet, and they came to uh, this particular city here. Very hard area to get to. Mountainous, difficult climb, the, uh, the robbers that I mentioned to you. And as I pointed out earlier, all of those cities that are mentioned in the upcoming chapters take place in this particular region, in the uh, province of Galatia. 
So again, study those books of your Bible as you are studying these particular passages. It'll bear light on it. As we read the rest of verse 14, notice that on the Sabbath day in that city, that region, they went into the synagogue and they sent down, they sat down. Paul and Barnabas sat down in the synagogue. Same thing that we saw they did when they began on the island of Cyprus. They went into the synagogue there in Salamis. They do that again here. Presumably they did that in every single city, even though it's not always mentioned to us. And so they go into this particular synagogue once more. And there we see that normal order of events in the synagogue service, which would have been prayer, a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets, somebody kind of talking about it, teaching a bit, and then closing prayer. That was the normal order of a synagogue service. And so we read here, verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Feel free, please come up. And so one or more of the synagogue leaders sent a little message over to Paul and, and uh, Barnabas and said, guys, if you want to talk, we can see that you're priest, something about their dress or attire. They said, why don't you come and address the congregation? And so Paul, you betcha. I would love the opportunity. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Verse 20, all this took place, took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he had promised. Paul recounts Old Testament history. And he just begins to weave through the books of the Bible. A lot of you are familiar with these accounts. And you can name, oh, that's in that book, that's in this book, and so on. But Paul, he begins, he stands up. Thank you for the opportunity. It seems he, he kind of, all right, everybody, let's settle down here. Much like we do after we do the handshake time. All right, everybody, it's time to bring it together. And he addresses two groups of people. The first, he says, men of Israel. That's the Jewish people that you would expect to be in the synagogue service. And then he says, and you who fear God. Now this isn't to imply that the Jewish people don't fear God. They, we would hope that they do. But remember that little phrase, you who fear God, refers to what is also called a God-fearer. And that was an actual title that was applied to a Gentile that essentially embraced Judaism with the exception of the customs and practices and circumcision and all of that. We learned in a previous study about a man named Cornelius, a centurion, who was a God-fearer. And so Paul is addressing the Jews that are gathered and these Gentiles that are gathered here as well at this synagogue service. And respectfully, he, he welcomes them, so to speak, or thanks them for the opportunity to speak to him. And he says this, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now that word listen 
is essentially say, saying, like, hear me out. Let me, let me say everything that I need to say before comment. Hear me out. Let me make my case. And as we're going to see, the case that he's going to be, make is based on the word of God. Paul is going to give them an evangelistic sermon. First time we have recorded for us in the book of Acts a full sermon or close to a full sermon, I doubt it was word for word, of the Apostle Paul. We've seen one of Stephen right before he was killed. We saw one of Peter on Pentecost, for instance, and other instances. So we've seen other sermons, and there's a lot of similarity between them because all three of those men are going to preach the gospel. You can't really change it. And Paul's strategy, however, is to recount the history of God, really, in the nation of Israel from the beginning all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. And he begins by looking in verse 17 at the patriarchal period. The patriarchal period is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. It looks at people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are the patriarchs. And so he says this, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. And we read that in the book of Genesis. We're familiar with it. Many of us are. From there, he quickly transitions in the second half of the verse. And he says, and he made the people great. So God chose our fathers, Abraham in particular, and made a nation from him. From you, Abraham, though you don't have any kids right now, you're 75 years old, but from you, I'm going to create a great nation. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He then goes on, uh, Paul does, and he said, and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So he transitions from the patriarchal period to the period under Mosaic rule, which we call, well, really even before that, leading up to the Exodus. And there's a book in our Bibles called the book of Exodus. You remember that in the closing pages of the book of Genesis, that there was a great famine that hit the land and it was impacting the people of God. And Joseph, one of the children of Jacob, he had 12 sons, goes on to be the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Joseph had access down in Egypt. So he brought his entire family, 70-ish, he brings his entire family down to Egypt where they're provided for. And they're, they're set off into a little corner of Egypt where no one's going to bother them, where they can be shepherds and herdsmen and the like. And they're preserved during that time. The book of Exodus opens with the words, but there arose another Pharaoh in the land who did not know Joseph. 400 years after the fact, the nation of Israel had grown from 70 to, they estimate, about 4 million people in that land there. And they were slaves in the land of Egypt until the cry of God's people rose up to heaven and he raised up a savior. And we know that savior, not in the sense of Jesus as savior, a deliverer, we know that deliverer was Moses. And so Paul's referencing that. And his audience would have been familiar, as many of you are, but he says he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He says, and he led them out of Egypt, which we know is under Moses. We watch the, every Passover. We see it on TV, Charlton Heston or Val Kilmer. For those of you a little younger, we see how he leads them out of uh, slavery. Paul references that. Verse 18, Paul reminds these Jews, he reminds these God-fearers of the 40 years that he put up with the people, the Jewish people, in the wilderness. In our Bibles, that's recorded from the book of Exodus 
through the book of Deuteronomy, the second through the fifth books of our Bibles, how God, for 40 years, my version says, put up with them. I like the way the, the older versions say it. He suffered he their manners in the wilderness. For 40 years, God suffered their manners in the wilderness. And if you've read those books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know that once again, after again, after again, there's a whole lot of griping going on by the Jewish people, even so much that they wanted to go back and become slaves because they had better food when they were slaves than this heavenly manna that God's providing for us miraculously out here in the wilderness. Paul references that. Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Remember, the Jewish people were coming out of slavery and they were going to make their way to the promised land, the land that had initially been promised to Abraham. They were led by Moses to the doorstep, so to speak, and then they were led in by Joshua. And we have recorded for us in the book that bears his name, the book of Joshua, the way they went into the land of promise and they routed the nations that were in there before them. Paul references it here and he says they destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan so that they could take possession of that which God had promised them 500 years earlier. Verse 20, Paul begins to recollect the period of the judges, the next book in our Bibles. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Now he references the book of Judges. And how during that period, from their first judge, a fellow by the name of Othniel, to their last judge, the prophet and judge Samuel, we read, and, he took the, and this all took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then finally Paul speaks of the Jewish monarchy the king that was established in the land, both with the man-chosen king, this guy named Saul, and with the God-chosen king, a fellow by the name of David. And so Paul says this, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do all my will. And so what Paul is doing here is he's sort of building a case. Remember he said, hear me out, let me make my case. And he's building a case about the history of Israel. But in reality, it's not really the history of Israel. Israel's sort of the passive player in this drama. It's really the history of God. It's the history of God's working with the Jewish people. He's the primary actor. Look, follow with me, verse 17. It says, the God of this people chose our fathers. So God chose Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Verse 17b, it says that he made the people great and he led them out of slavery. Verse 18, it says he put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, he gave them their land. Verse 20, he gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them Saul and then later he raised up David. So again, this is the history of God's doing. God is the one that is choosing and leading and putting up with and giving to the people. So this history that Paul has recorded is the history of the record of God working on behalf of his people. 
and their response to that work. But Paul's not done his sermon. He goes on in verse 23. And he had just referenced David, the one, the man after his own heart. And he says, and of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So the Jewish people didn't bring a savior. The priest didn't bring a savior. David didn't bring a savior. God, once again, is the actor. He brought a savior as he had promised. And the second part of Paul's sermon is obviously a continuation of the first. And he just having referenced David and a promise that was made to David, he's spoken to us of all of God's Old Testament work from Abraham to David. Now he's going to speak of God's acts in what we'll call the New Testament period. So Paul's reminding his hearers of something that you already know, they already know, that God is not a God of just the past, but he's a God of the present as well. He is still acting. And he has acted in recent times doing something new. This is where Paul's going to go. He's going to transition. So in times past, God established the Old Testament covenant with his people. But in these days, the days Paul's speaking, he has established a new covenant through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 23, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. That promise is recorded for us. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And there in that verse, God promised to David that his descendant, one of his descendants would sit on the throne and that that descendant would, his reign would be established forever. Now, as we're reading, we might initially think, oh, that's going to be Solomon. But you know, Solomon didn't reign forever. It's another, another descendant of David. And what was one of Jesus's most common titles of him? He is the son of David. He is the one that is being referenced. And his throne is the one which will be established forever. And so again, once more, God demonstrates the way in which he has acted on behalf of his people, in this instance, by faithfully keeping his promise to David and sending forth his son, Jesus. And this is what the entire lesson that Paul has been preaching has been building toward, to get to Jesus. The pivotal moment in the history of the world where the savior of the world came forth. And so through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, what Paul was doing was bringing his listeners to this point the point of Jesus. Every one of these events and periods of history were meant to lead to Jesus. For as Paul, in Paul's thinking, that is the consummation of God's plan, that he would faithfully keep his promise and that he would bring forth a savior. And as you might be able to anticipate in this sermon, what Paul's going to do now, saying everything was building to this, what he's going to do now is challenge his listeners to do something with that information. It's something, as you know, preachers typically will do. They'll end their sermon, so to speak, with something like, so having heard all of that, what are you going to do with it? How shall you respond to that? Paul is saying here in so many words, look, you've heard all this. You've seen the faithful way that God has worked 
through history on behalf of his people. Now, what are you going to do with that info? How are you going to respond? Now, before asking that question, Paul's going to draw his sermon to that place of decision. But before doing so, Paul's going to present two different responses to God's historical work among his people. The first is going to be, you'll see in verses 24 and 25, the first will be the response of John the Baptist and his disciples. They saw what God did. They saw what God promised. They responded in a particular manner. The second is going to be in verses 26 to 29, and that'll be those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, the priests and the people that lived there in the city. That'll be the second group that Paul's going to focus on, how they responded. And then from that, he'll say, now, which essentially he's going to go on to say, and which one are you? Are you like these people or are you like that people? And for that, you'll have to come back next week to discover how they responded. Let me close our time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a living and active scripture. Lord, that we're not just studying some history book here of some interesting things and that hopefully maybe we can make some application here and there too. But we're following the living word of God. We're, we're studying it, we're reading it, we're considering it. And Lord, you have done it many, many times in our lives. You've done it in the lives of all of your children where you've caused your word to come alive and to speak into deep places. And Lord, today I'm reminded just of your hand in my life and how it's really your story, navigating circumstances, working in my life, bringing me to a place, even bringing me to this place. And you do that in every single one of our lives, Lord, how remarkable. And Father, our response to that, we want it to be one of gratitude. We want it to be one of praise. We want it to be one that worships you. and responds by giving you the glory that you deserve. And so, Lord, uh, use this little trek through Old Testament history to enliven us and to enlarge in our hearts that we might have more of you in them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.